Hi guys, Megan Bob here. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode. I just wanted to give you guys a quick heads up that this one might be a little sexier and sometimes maybe a little bit more explicit than you were necessarily expecting from the next wrestling fan. But then this is the next wrestling fan after dark. So just wanted to give you a heads up. All right. Enjoy the episode. Bye. I'm Miles, and I'm here to understand the mysteries of romance. And I'm Megan Bob, and I'm here to help with the aid of one of my favorite romance novels. This is a very special bonus episode of The Next Wrestling Fan, After Dark. Because I earned 10 points on the cheap pop quiz. So I had to read a romance novel of Bob's choice. In this case, The Duchess Deal by Tessa Dare. Welcome to the next wrestling fan, which is normally a podcast of fights and feels, but this time around, I think it's pretty much just feels. Uh, as you heard in the intro, Bob has gained the requisite number of pop quiz points that we agreed would result in me reading a romance novel and us doing an episode about it, and it did, and we're here to talk about it, and I'm not sure I've ever seen Megan Bob so delighted in her entire life. Ah, uh, I am, ah, uh, uh, I... I have heart palpitations. I'm so excited. <laughs> I had trouble sleeping last night. I woke up way too early this morning. Oh, oh. It's, it's been a real ride of joy. I'm really excited about this. <laughs> okay, so Miles, let yeah. me give you a bit of an unlikely story. Mm. Romance novels are the twin sister of professional wrestling. Not identical twins, but twins. For all that they're very different mediums and different audiences, their position in the pop cultural hierarchy is surprisingly comparable. So when we talk about wrestling, the reaction of people who don't watch it is often that it's lowbrow, uninteresting, for idiots that think it's real, associated with Hicks, the working class. That's right. In short, the attitude is one of classism and educational elitism, you know, shocking no one. Romance novels get painted with a similar brush. The critique mm. goes that they're badly written, that they're lowbrow, that they're for people who buy their books at the grocery store, that they're read by stay-at-home moms and grandmas, they're for idiots who don't read real books. So basically the same story of classism and educational elitism. Sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, because everyone should be reading Pulitzer Prize-winning novels instead of reading romance. And just like <laughs> everybody should be watching, you know, Masterpiece Theater, not watching wrestling. Right. What are you, uncultured? Yeah, exactly. Romance novels suffer from an extra reputational anchor weighing them down. They're written by women, marketed at, and read by women. Mm. If society has taught us anything, it's that unobjectionable things enjoyed by women are fine and should be allowed to exist. <laughs> you know, yeah, like right. how everybody's cool about pumpkin spice flavor and yoga pants and no one's ever written a think piece about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh my God. I this know. world. This society. We, li we live in one. I don't know yes. if you've heard. <laughs> so unfortunately, what society has taught us is that women have only recently achieved personhood. And <laughs> that's pretty tenuous at best. You know, women liking things. Next, they'll be wanting the vote. <laughs> but you know what? Boy, do people like romance novels. So you'd think they're fairly popular naturally. Mystery novels are also really popular. 
they represent about $728 million of the book buying pie. Romance and erotica makes up between $1 billion to $1.4 billion of it. Wow. That is the difference between the most popular and the second most popular. Romance novels make up around one-third of the books sold in North America, and then according to the Romance Writers Association, as of 2008, 9.5% of the readers of romance novels identify as male. The rest of the readership is female. And they also found that in 2008, one quarter of the U.S. population had read at least one romance novel that year. Hmm. Yeah. So what is it that draws people to this genre? I can illustrate at least one example for the allure of them in the female readership. Yesterday, I saw a bumper sticker that just said, I love boobs. <laughs> yeah, not women, not people, just boobs. Right, boobs. Yeah, because women are people. Women are discrete body parts. And I say this not to depress anyone, although it is depressing. Mm-hmm. I say it because it points out how goddamn revolutionary it is that romance novels exist and write women as whole people who have complex emotions, identities, lived experiences, and sexualities. Furthermore, romance novels deals with characters that see the lead female character as a whole person and value her as a whole person, and not just tits and ass. Mm -hmm. The majority of media produced, if it has female characters. The female characters are secondary to the male leads, or if the female character is the lead, There's usually a lot of suffering involved because we don't make enjoyable and fun stories about women 99% of the time. That's just not Mm -hmm. a thing we do. So women being allowed to enjoy things is revolutionary in media. Romance (laughs) novels sort of dare to ask the question, what if women were complex, nuanced, whole beings with their own identity? Wow, that's some galaxy brain shit. Right? So a unique criticism of romance novels that I've heard is that they give women, quote, unrealistic expectations about men. (laughs) as though it is unreasonable to think that your partner might find you attractive and appreciate you as a being with a complete identity separate from his own. Oh my God. Is what is considered beyond the pale. And there's always also conversations about, you know, they describe these men as too hot, but really the core of it is they describe these men as seeing a woman as a human being. I know. There's nothing to say to that. It just is a criticism I've heard leveled at romance novels as like, you're never going to be able to get married after this. You've been ruined by all of this like delightful, you know, complex relationship. You know why? It's because dudes need to read romance novels so that they can learn to meet these high expectations that romance (laughs) novels are giving to women. Yeah, these insanely high (laughs) expectations. These, like, the super high bar, which romance novels can teach you how to clear, guys. Yeah. And then the women won't be disappointed. Maybe if we step up our game, we can solve this problem to everybody's mutual fucking benefit. Oh, what? This is insane. This (laughs) this is crazy talk. It's conspiracy theory. This is the chemtrails of gender. (laughs) Okay. Gen trails. Oh, I love it. Femtrails. Oh, Femtrails, I like Bob. it. All right. So back to wrestling, though, because the other oh, thing yeah. that unites romance novels and wrestling is their love of context and relationships. Because, mm. yes, we could just watch two strangers engaging in a street fight or you could watch or read about two people just fucking. But <laughs> that's not what wrestling or romance novels are selling. What they are selling is stakes. 
you learn about the characters and their needs, their foibles, and their relationships with those around them. With that, each match, each scene in the book then has stakes that mean the outcome is important for the character's own journey. It's not just spectacle, it's an emotional arc. Okay. The parallels don't stop there either because wrestling gets complaints that it's not real. The matches are predetermined. Right. And if you're good enough at reading the way the story is unfolding, you can generally predict the match outcome. Or at least I assume somebody who is much better at reading the storylines can. You have to know a lot of the context to be able to, like, even then, like, me and my friends who watch wrestling have, like, pick em contests for all the big shows, and we don't, we never get shit right, like... Oh, wow. Anyway. I mean, we, well, we, we do sometimes, but a lot of the time we don't. Okay. Well, romance novels all have the same story. There's no surprise that the lead couple ends up together. But like wrestling, you're not following the story just for the outcome. You mm-hmm. want the outcome, obviously, but the joy of it is in the tension and the journey to the outcome. So a good wrestling match takes you on an emotional roller coaster and surprises you with how it unfolds or with the quality and skill with which it unfolds. A good romance novel should do the same. Ultimately, you know, there are no new stories out there, but there are new and extraordinary ways of telling them. So for anyone out there who's listening and is considering romance novels for the first time, I want to lay bare a handful of things about them so you know what to expect. The story will always start with you meeting one or both of your lead characters. Usually Mm. you are introduced to only one of them at the start, and then the other one is introduced a little later on. Regency romance novels are almost always written in close third person, so the pronouns are she, they, he, not I. In contemporary Mm. and sci-fi romance, you might get a lot more I. The point of view will switch between the two leads, typically, and sometimes even give you a few scenes inside the perspective of a B-plot character. Okay. So once you have the meet-cute, you then get the rising action as their relationship moves from whatever it is initially. That scale runs from established hatred to covert love and lust. (laughs) Yeah, my expertise is Regency, a.k.a. historical romance fiction. Which is what we're reading here. Yes. And you can almost time the book by these following benchmarks. First kiss, 25% of the way through the book. Sex, 50% of the way through the book. Admission of love between them on one or both sides, 60 to 75% of the way through the book. Uh Uh-huh. Marriage and settling in, about 90% of the way through the book. Pregnancy and children are 97% of the way through the book. Okay. So some writers do play very fast and loose with this, and there may be a marriage immediately, as there is in this book, or no sex until about 70% of the way through the book. I was going to say, if there, you know, I'm, I'm imagining a lot of Regency romances do not involve premarital sex, but I could be wrong about that. Oh, you're very wrong about that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, wildly wrong about that. Fair enough. We can get into those weeds. Those <laughs> interesting. Those are wild. Sexy weeds. Them some tall weeds. Yeah, they are. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I mean, these are just typical pacing conventions. It's very typical for romance novels, no matter their subgenre, to be released as a series. Mm. Part of that means that somewhere during the story, you will be introduced through one of your two leads to the main characters of the upcoming books in the series. Okay. Is this one a series? Yes, it is. Really? Is this the first book? Yes, it is. As far as being introduced to those characters, uh, if you don't pick it out, I will tell you when it happens in your breakdown. All right. I also, before we get into your breakdown, I wanted to ask you two questions about romance novels. Go for it. Have you ever read one before or even skimmed one just for the sexy parts because you and I grew up in a pre-internet porn era? Um, no. 
as in terms of my memory, the closest I can recall to ever reading a romance book is one time Sharon and I, uh, my wife Sharon, uh, found we were in like a used like a thrift store, and I found a romance novel that looked really saucy. Mm-hmm. And I started like following her around the thrift store, reading it out loud. And so we we ended up I ended up buying the book. It was like a quarter because it was a thrift store, and I kept reading it like to her as she was driving all the way home. And we still have it in our house. It's very sentimental now. Um, it's called Blaze. I don't know if anyone's ever read it, but uh, yeah. Other than that, I'm pretty much. I don't think I've ever read a romance novel. Now I've read Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. So I've read some Austin. I've read some like old Regency era books. Yeah. But in terms of like, I've never read a book like this before. Okay. Now I do have some experience in the realm of sexy fanfic. Hmm. Um, which this reminded me of in a lot of places. Not yes. not in all the places, but in many places it did. I was like, okay, I've read this. I've read things that are tonally similar to this on AO3. So I, you know, I have, you know, I'm a male nerd, guys. You're damn right I've gone looking for porn involving my favorite sci-fi fantasy characters. Don't judge me. Let whoever amongst us has not done that cast the first whatever we cast nowadays. Bray Wyatt says not to judge people. Yeah. Listen to him. (laughs) Um... Yeah, so I've I've definitely had some experience with erotic fanfic um, and erotica sort of in through that lens, but I've never sat down and read a, an erotic romance novel. Mm-hmm. And this wouldn't even be considered an erotic romance novel. Erotica is slightly different. It does have that like this romance novel absolutely is erotic and has like, like sex in it, an sure. explicit sex at that. But genre-wise, it would never be placed in the erotica or even necessarily near the erotica. Right. And I think I'm more familiar with the erotica yeah. than I am with the romance because, you know, I went to I went to the internet for specific reasons, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a dark time. We were younger. <laughs> we didn't know a lot. We had questions. <laughs> What's your second question, Bob? My second question is... What preconceived notions and expectations did you have about the genre, maybe as a whole? So it's interesting because the other place I'm coming to this from is I'm someone who recently has been kind of doing a thing where I try to give a fair shake to media aimed at women. The main thing that I've been doing for the past several months is that over on the Unspoiled uh, podcast... My friend Natasha and I, for for patrons of that show, have been covering the Twilight Saga. And the Twilight Saga so far is pretty bereft of erotica, as I'm sure will surprise <laughs> precisely no one. Um, but it's definitely a, a supernatural romance. And yes. one of the things I find most interesting about the Twilight Saga is that Stephanie Meyer, the author of that series, clearly cares a lot about like the romance parts of the story. And really finds the supernatural shit kind of inconvenient, which I thought is is very interesting. Um, And then, of course, the other major thing about Twilight is that, you know, as you move through Twilight, no matter how fair a shake you're giving it, it turns out that these characters are just the worst people. Like, (laughs) they're, they're terrible. They're all terrible. And so I think a lot of my preconceived notions when it came into reading this book were sort of defined by... My Twilight experience, in a sense, because I'm like, all right, are we going to get a bunch of, um, you know, just like really blatant 
rom-com style miscommunication, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I hate that shit. I hate it when, I hate it in romantic comedies when you've got the couple and they get together and then, like, one of them sees the other one from across the street. Yes. And, like, it looks like she's sucking on some guy's cock when she's actually trying to get a quarter out of the soda machine or something. Yeah. And so he goes, so he goes off and then it forms the big third act conflict and they have to get back together. I'm like, come on, like, talk to each other. This would be fine. Yeah, so, but beyond that, I think mainly my preconceived ideas of romance novels were just like, you know, it's the shit. It's got the sex scenes. Like, I, I see them in grocery stores. They have covers where the dude has a is a pirate with a torn up shirt, and he's holding the woman in his arms, and her hair is flowing, and it's got some kind of bizarre title. Yep. And it's like, they all look the same. They do. So, yeah. I have some specific preconceived notions that I wanted to tackle in my my breakdown. Okay. But uh, but yeah, I definitely was coming into this, and I, I think unconsciously, but I was definitely coming into this not expecting the level of of skill and the level of like literary merit from like a thematic narrative perspective that I ended up getting. I think that's really common. So I was just wanted to sort of know, take your temperature as you were coming into it as well. Thank you for answers to those questions. And now I think it's time mm. for what Miles has cleverly decided <laughs> to call Miles Mansplanation. That's right. So Miles will be tagging me in to answer questions as we go through this. All right, Miles. Ah, take it away. Okay. So. This is a dual perspective novel written in the third person, the close third person, as you mentioned, Bob. So we go back and forth between two point of view characters who also happen to be the two romantic leads. Emma is a seamstress who was born a gentleman's daughter, but who currently has no social status and is struggling to make ends meet. Ash is a duke who has recently returned from the war with burns covering the entire right side of his body. Uh, His name is Ash because he's the Duke of Ashbury, but really because he's a burned guy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The story takes place in London, I believe. Yeah. A specific neighborhood called Mayfair during the Regency era. And so this is an unlikely pairing between the two of these characters, to say the least. How could they possibly end up together, you ask? Uh, Well, we start with the fact that in addition to his burns, Duke Ash over here has come down with a bad case of self-loathing emo crap. Yep. His disfigurement resulted in the disillusion of his marriage arrangements with his fiancée Annabelle, which means that when he dies, his holdings pass to his cousin, who is, in the parlance of Regency-era England, a (laughs) jerk-off. Now, Ash is a bit of a jerk-off himself, but he still really does care about the people he's responsible for because, you know, he's a good upper-class white man who at least treats people like prized objects. (laughs) That is the rule of Regency romance! (laughs) Anyway, if he wants to prevent Cousin Frank from using the entirety of high society to host undignified frat parties, Ash needs to find a woman who will marry him, despite the burns, and bear him a son. Remember, this kind of thing is representative of most of human history because our species is basically the evolutionary equivalent of Rob Schneider's film career. Oh, so true. Just as Ash is thinking about how he'll never find a woman who's not repulsed by him, which, when you think about it, isn't really that difficult timing considering it's what he always thinks about, (laughs) there's a knock on the door. Emma, it turns out, was the seamstress hired to make Annabelle's dress. She has also been screwed by this marriage ending, Because she already put in the work, but now she's not getting paid. And she needs to get paid. She's, like, not going to be able to eat. Yeah. She shows up at Ash's door, very reasonably asking him to pay her for her labor, 
Ash reports her to the House on American Activities Committee, and that is the end of the book. So thank you for listening, everyone. <laughs> we will see you next. Oh, no, no seriously, though. Um, Ash starts off by insulting the dress, uh, calling it unicorn vomit. And uh, unintentionally inspiring Brie Larson's latest film. Ooh. Then continues to give Emma shit like the sarcastic taint blossom that he is. <laughs> Eventually, he does agree to give her the money, but after talking with her for a minute, he's like, hold on a second. You're hot. I was hot until I was literally hot, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> the point is... If you're so desperate for money that you come here to call me out personally, you probably wouldn't mind being a duchess, right? How about how about being a duchess? You want, you want to be a duchess? <laughs> and Emma's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, dude. This is weird. And leaves with the money he owed her. Back in her shop the next day, she finds out that one of her clients, a young girl from a good family named Davina, uh, has slept with some dude and is now pregnant. Emma wants to help Davina prevent her father from finding out, but there's no real easy way to do that. Until, that is, Duke Ash comes knocking on the door to be like, seriously, lady, I will make you a duchess. <laughs> like, you won't have to worry about rent anymore. Just think about that sentence. <laughs> Emma's like, you know, you're not wrong, my dude. And it doesn't <laughs> help that when they get accosted by thugs on their way back to Emma's house, Ash beats the shit out of them and drives them away. The first act of what will become the growing legend of the Monster of Mayfair. Before continuing, Bob, I need to ask, so... Emma is a really strong heroine. Yes. Which is not something that springs to mind when I think the words romance novel. She starts the book off with a really bold, direct action against the aristocracy. Yes, she does. And when they're accosted in the park, Emma is, like, ready to fight. Like, she's not just hiding behind her dude. Now, is she an outlier in the realm of female romance protagonists? Or is is this just my bias against romance novels coming out here? So... There's a weird thing about romance novels, which is that they are inherently political, which is okay. an odd sort of sentence to say. But because they're by women and for women, they've always kind of had women's issues embedded in them. So you can kind of track society in some ways. And this one's quite recent. How recent is this? This one came out in, I want to say, 2015, 2016. Okay, that's, that is very recent then. There are lots of other strong female protagonists who have those kinds of direct actions and do wild and strong things. Uh-huh. But that started probably in the 2000s is whenever I would say you start seeing a lot of that. The 90s had some of that. And then there's another sort of subgenre or I guess subcategory of romance that's called kind of old school. Okay. And that would be a little bit more, you know, passive female lead. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, again, another kind of connection to pro wrestling in that it's, it's only recently beginning to move in a progressive direction. Although I think it's probably still ahead of pro wrestling in that, in that vein. So, uh, By the end of the thug encounter, Emma agrees to marry Ash for the sake of both their conveniences, in her case partially because it will give her some resources with which to help her friend Davina. She also randomly says she needs to bring her cat, which she doesn't have a cat, (laughs) so she goes out and finds one off the streets. Bob, I feel like this is a joke I'm missing, or is Tessa Dare perhaps a fellow disciple of the screenwriting book Save the Cat, do you think? He, uh... That could well be. I think there's two things that I think, but a good romance novel should be a little bit bananas. Sure. And sometimes you need an outside influence to make it bananas. 
Uh-huh. And in this case, the cat is a good way to get that. Two, I think perhaps an example of her exerting her force, even if she's not necessarily thinking about it and mm-hmm. going, oh, yes, this is a good plan. But going, all right, I'm doing this because it's inconvenient for you and I'm not sure I like you yet. So I'm going to do this. Right. Like assuming the most likely option and this doesn't work out, at least I can have someone to hang out with. Yeah, exactly. And and maybe it'll annoy you as a bonus. (laughs) Yeah. I also feel like this book is very clearly drawing inspiration from Beauty and the Beast. Yes. And so maybe you just need like a, a funny animal character. Because it's kind of a Disney movie. You know, you're never wrong to have a funny animal character in anything. And this was a way to get one in. And I regret nothing about it. Emma and Ash get married, which I was not expecting to happen right away. Um, It's a very quick, formal ceremony that takes place at the mansion. And uh, Ash lays out his rules for the marriage. He's going to come to her room every night and fuck her. But (laughs) no kissing, no kissing and no lights. As soon as she's pregnant, she gets shipped off to Swanlia, which is like his uh, vacation estate. Yes. Uh, And they never have to see each other again. Emma tells him that she's going to need a little bit more than that uh, and suggests (laughs) they have dinners together, at least, which Ash agrees to. Now, at this point, I have to make note of the fact that throughout all of the stuff I've been describing, Ash and Emma are constantly thinking about jumping the other one's bones. Like, constantly. It's been happening (laughs) since they met. They are crazy attracted to one another. Unfortunately, they are also each burdened with a major emotional knot that they will spend the rest of the book slowly untying. Ash is convinced that nobody could ever love him or indeed look at him without screaming in terror because he is burned like all the way down on one side of his body. And Emma has been betrayed by every man in her life and is constantly reminding herself that giving into vulnerability is a bad idea. Now, that said, most of the relationship conflict in this book has its roots in Ash's character arc, not Emma's. Emma's character arc is a little more internal and personal. Mm -hmm. It's arguably deeper and more profound. Yes. But she approaches the marriage with the attitude of, dude, why are you introducing all of this drama? I actually think you're super hot and I'm down for all of this. Like, stop being a baby. Yeah. But Ash consistently interprets everything she says and does in a way that allows him to continue hating himself. Now, once we find out how and why Ash developed this complex, he becomes a much more sympathetic character. But early on, you just want him to get over his dumb self. Like their first attempts at getting down are sabotaged (laughs) uh, first by him just being a dumb idiot. I love it. And second by the cat, which <laughs> who can't relate to pet-related coitus interruptus? <laughs> I know I can. I know. Well, if you have a pet, you're like, well, this could go south at any time. <laughs> uh, but then they finally do actually have sex. And it's, it's great. Yeah. Um, he's like really, really into pleasing her, which is like what caused the first failure to launch is that he was like doing really good foreplay and she was into it and he got scared and ran away. <laughs> <laughs> he was prepared for every eventuality, but it going well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, what's this? She actually wants to have sex with me. Free! <laughs> Oh, Ash. Anyway, once they figure out that, no, actually, we we would really like to screw each other, they start fucking on every piece of furniture in the mansion, which 
I have written down that there are a lot of sex scenes in this book. Are there, though? <laughs> no, not especially, but I think it's the average amount. I So Sharon has read romance novels before. Mm-hmm. And I said to her while I was reading, I was like, damn, babe, there's like, there's like six sex scenes in here. And she's like, that's all? <laughs> I so. think it really depends on the kind of book it is. I would say contemporary or some kinds of sci-fi would have more. Mm-hmm. But I think that's also a function of the fact that Regency romance, there are some real practicalities that have to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, one practicality to name just the most obvious one is frankly, like the clothes. Yeah. That it's just having sex with somebody is a process. <laughs> and you can't just go like, all right, one layer off, ready to go. You're like, okay, there's like a whole procedure that in and of itself adds a complicating factor. There's also, you know, opportunity, which if they're not already married, like opportunities are going to be fewer and farther between. So mm-hmm. those kinds of things mean that in a Regency romance novel, you might get a juicier, more interesting sex scenes, but you will not probably get as many of them. So anyway, yeah, they're just getting it on all over the place. Boy, are they. Uh, Emma does have an ulterior motive for banging to that all over the house because If she can get pregnant quickly, then she gets sent off to Swanlea right away. And if she can bring Ash out of his shell a little bit, maybe he can act like a functioning fucking person (laughs) and they can make the acquaintance of Davina's father and Emma can invite Davina to Swanlea before she's visibly pregnant. So that's kind of her plan. But of course, Ash and Emma are starting to really actually kind of fall for each other, even if neither of them will admit it at this point. And this is a development that comes to the delight of the household staff, including Khan, the butler, yeah. and Emma's maid Marie, I believe, or Mary. Mary. Emma's maid Mary. Because they want to see Ash happy, and they're tired of him being Mopey McMoberson. <laughs> Again, this is this is just straight Beauty and the Beast, guys. Yeah. Emma also joins up with a delightfully weird group of girlfriends that includes a clockmaker, a mad scientist, and a... Uh, Making a cameo appearance, Smash Fiction's own Kit Mulcairin. I was was a little surprised to find Kit in this book, but when I met the woman with five million pets of all different species who seems to consider them a higher order of companion than the humans in her life, I couldn't deny the fact that Tessa Dare has apparently met Kit and, uh, and put her in a book, so. Yeah. Good job, Kit. Penelope. Yeah, Penelope. If you're not a Smash Fiction listener... Uh, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but then again, you should just go listen to Smash Fiction yeah. and uh, listen to Kit just, like, go crazy about animals, because that's her thing. And rage against humanity. Rage against humanity. Shitty humans. Um, in the meantime, <laughs> Ash has taken to wandering the streets at night. Like, after he and Emma <laughs> have sex, he just, like, gets up and wanders the streets and uh, giving the redheaded stepchild treatment to anyone he finds doing something bad. Yep. The papers start writing about him as the monster of Mayfair, and he even attracts a plucky kid sidekick named The Menace. Yes! So, is Beauty and the Beast, if the Beast were Batman, is, is basically what this is? Yes, it is! I, I was not expecting to find Batman here. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I would say that... What's really common now, and I love it so much, is doing treatments of popular franchises in the context of a romance novel. 
There's one that I read and it wasn't especially wildly good, but I was so delighted with the tropes it was playing with because it was Indiana Jones meets Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Wow. And the woman was Indiana Jones and actually was called Indy. Nice. Well, I mean, shit, the fucking the kid is called the menace and he goes around with a slingshot like there's another direct reference right there. Absolutely. And I've told you about this one, but there is a delightful book out there that is The Bachelor meets Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> um. All right. So this situation continues for a while with Emma and Ash working through their feelings for each other and their feelings about themselves. Ash finds out that Emma's vicar father turned her out on the streets after she lost her virginity to a dude who didn't care about her, after which she walked to London in the snow and lost a toe because of it. Yep. Good Lord. Um, Ash, who at this point is like extremely protective of Emma and kind of was from the very beginning, like that was really his first strong emotion toward her was possessiveness. Yes. So he visits Emma's dad in the night and torments him, claiming to be a demon from hell and uh, saying that it won't be long before her dad is brought down below because he's a sinner because of how he treated his daughter. Emma convinces Ash to take her to a play, which is an accomplishment. Yeah. Um, I should also mention that Emma loves making clothes and wants to continue it as her hobby, but Ash continually shits on the idea until he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but mainly he does until the very end. She, however, gets to needle him endlessly with a variety of pet names, which I really enjoyed. And she and her friends even start making up stories and telling them to the press about the monster of Mayfair doing nice soft things, which (laughs) drives him crazy because he's really kind of enjoying these like this uh, alter ego in the papers. Oh, Ash. So, yeah, they are basically, you know, dealing with their feelings for each other and, and just constantly Annoying one another. So true love, everyone. Yeah. Uh, That's what I like to see in a romance. At the theater, which is a a production of Titus Andronicus. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) Which I really enjoyed the line. So at the theater, Emma and Ash get all sexy again, and they're getting ready to leave early. And at one point, Emma's like, but what about the ending of the play? And he's like, it's Shakespeare. Everyone dies. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) He's not wrong. Also, as someone who uh, definitely had the refrigerator magnets of the Shakespearean insults, I really appreciate the fact that Ash only swears in Shakespearean insults. Yes. And it's actually like a, a funny emotional beat when he actually does it. And he just says, fuck, shit, goddamn. Oh, yeah, I loved that. I thought that was such a fun choice. So... Ash basically goes out to summon the carriage and then fucking Annabelle shows up. Yeah. She tells Emma that Ash only married her to get back at Annabelle and doesn't love Emma at all, which causes all of Emma's insecurities to come flooding back into her brain. Um, And really the only moment, like the only big moment where she questions the relationship, Mm -hmm. she runs out into the night. It's raining. Ash does a very nice job of telling Annabelle where to stick it uh, before finding Emma and telling her that Annabelle's full of shit. Uh, and that, in fact, his rules for their marriage, remember, no lights, no kissing, going to Swanlee the moment she's pregnant and never seeing each other again, were originally Annabelle's conditions for still marrying him. Yeah. Which he rejected. Oof. Harsh. Yeah. Fuck that lady, dude. It, when you find that out, you're like, oh, God, no wonder you're fucked up. Yeah, when you find out that, like, the whole reason all of this shit is happening is because he has taken... Annabelle's picture of him 
and grafted it onto himself mm-hmm. and like treated it as reality and like projected it onto everybody else in his life. It kind of recontextualizes the entire first part of the book. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he's a significantly more sympathetic character. Yeah. It's a really well done device, actually. I was super impressed by that. Like, it, it's not really a twist, but like, it kind of is because it throws everything at the beginning in a whole new light. Yeah, I agree. Um, And it's just really skillful and again to make the twilight comparison like that's something that stephanie meyer does not know how to do oh god i think most authors don't know how to do it that well yeah and she fucking tries man she tries to like bring in these things that are supposed to recontextualize these characters but it really doesn't work and here it's just like he tells emma that and you're just like oh shit yeah oh you poor bastard you have been living your life as someone else sees you and like playing out a role that someone else assigned to you. And it's terrible. Yeah. Um, But anyway, it does serve as the catalyst for their um, reunion. They stay at a nearby inn. And in the morning, the menace covers for their escape because people were going around like the monster of Mayfair kidnapped a girl. Somebody bring him in. (laughs) Uh, So Ash gives the menace his like cape and hat, which is his signature stuff. And he pretends to be the monster of Mayfair so they can escape back home. At which point, a really legitimately sweet, like, making love sex scene happens. Yeah! Where they affirm their love and commitment to each other, and it's beautiful, and I almost cried. Yeah, it's really good. It's genuinely really beautiful. And then again, another, like, really skillful thing that Dare does here. In the middle of this amazing sex scene, so we found out earlier, in addition to all the Annabelle stuff, that um, the first time Annabelle saw him with his scars, she had to run away and go vomit. Yeah. So we're in the we're like right in the middle, like the climax, so to speak. Again, I'm just gonna say climax over and over again. Yeah, you climax. Should. Climax. Not as fun as turnbuckle, but more fun in no. other ways. It contextually is more fun in many ways. <laughs> um, so right at the climax of this like beautiful sex scene, Emma's like puts her hand over her mouth and has to go throw up. And, like, this was so emotional for me because we, we just learned that, you know, like, we, we know how Ash is going to react to this. Yeah. And it's like, wait a minute. Did Emma just, like, have a visceral reaction to his scars and is actually having an uncontrollable physical reaction to him? Because that would be terrible. <laughs> for a second, you're just like, wait, no, no. Not now. Not like this. Yeah. Uh, but then, of course, like for me, before the next chapter even started, and that was the end of the chapter, you reached the very logical conclusion that no, Emma is pregnant. Once Emma manages to convince Ash that that is actually the reason she had to run to the vomiting hole or chamber- whatever they had instead of toilets these days. <laughs> Probably a chamber pot. I can't. I guess. I'm not sure yeah. what level of uh, plumbing technology they're at. <laughs> it's a little bit variable depending on the book. Yeah, yeah, this is, like, Regency period very clearly, but it's never it's never specific as to the year, and there's, like, enough anachronism going on that it really doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. So, uh, after she does convince Ash that she actually does still love him, she starts working on the idea of them actually being, like, a couple raising their son, because, you know, they're in love with each other. Um, <laughs> Ash is still having a problem with this, though, because he just can't help being a dumbass. He... Doesn't think he'd be a good father. And he's still looking for any reason to explain this inexplicable love that Emma has for him. 
We also uh, get a, a brief interlude. So Emma's dad comes to see her. She goes back to the shop to, to like briefly have a covert meetup with uh, Davina, I think. Mm-hmm. And her dad shows up asking for forgiveness. <sighs> yeah. And she tells him to go all the way fuck himself. Yeah. In one of my absolute favorite moments of the book. It was so great. I was so like, that's right. He's a piece of shit. And again, this must be a project of contemporary writing because like, you know, is she going to forgive her dad for all this, especially because he is only doing this because now he thinks he's going to hell. And not only does she tell him to go fuck himself, she brings that up <laughs> and she tells him she's been like alone and on her own without a fucking toe because of this guy for six years, I think. Yeah. And she's like, you can come see me in another fucking six years. Yeah. And try again. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, it's definitely the kind of thing that you see more now. This one, this very specifically was written after the 2016 election. Like, if it's written after Gamergate in 2014, I would kind of expect this to be a th- of the sort of thing that happens. There's a moment whenever Ash goes to talk to her father, and the father's defense of his actions was that You know, she was given every explanation and nevertheless, she persisted. Mm -hmm. And like that was a thing that quite a few romance writers used in their books after the election. Nevertheless, she persisted as a kind of fuck you. And so, yeah, this is very much embedded in all of that. That line did stand out to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Emma also figures out that Ash is the one who visited her dad and confronts him about it, but ultimately it just makes her love him more because nobody has ever stepped up to defend her from anything or anyone. Uh, Shit goes less well when Davina shows up being like, hey, uh, I'm starting to show. Are we are we doing this? (laughs) Yeah. Now, this sends Ash like Emma handled the big reveal of something he did behind her back really well. Um, But when Ash finds out all this. It sends him into a full-blown fucking meltdown where he latches on to this whole plan with Davina as the entire reason for Emma pretending to be attached to him and like him. And he basically tries to end the relationship. Yeah. Now, Emma, to her unbelievable credit, is basically like, whatever, dude, you know that I love you. Get back to me when you've worked through your issues. I have to go help my friend now. Yep. I really love the part where after, like, he says, like, there's no need to say anything else to each other or whatever. Like, there's a scene with her where she's like, God damn it, this really sucks. I would totally be crying if I had time, but I don't. I have to fucking make this gown to go to this ball. (laughs) Yeah. Because her plan involves meeting up with Davina's father at a ball being thrown by Annabelle's family, of all people. And this means that she's going to be all alone in high society for the first time, which makes her feel super uncomfortable. And people know that she's a seamstress because she's made dresses for a lot of high society people. So they will see her as who is this ragamuffin to come Mm -hmm. around here and pretend to be one of us. So this is going to go pretty badly. Yeah. And she got a little bit of that when they were at the theater. And in fact, that was like the thrust of Annabelle's attack on her was like, why do you think he married you? He because he wants to cause a fucking scene. Mm hmm. And he wanted to get something over on me by marrying someone who's just like, whose connections are so decidedly below his own, <laughs> as Lady Catherine de Berg or Mr. Darcy might say. Yeah. Despite the fact that 
she is like putting basically throwing herself to the wolves in terms of going to a ball by herself. Yeah. Ash refuses to go with her. So she leaves him there to process or whatever. Uh, it should be noted at this point that Ash has like his own badminton court <laughs> where he makes Khan, the butler, play all these sports with him. Yes. <laughs> and Khan is like, please, no, master, I don't want to play any more sports. He's like, no, Khan, throw the ball. <laughs> So he goes down there after Emma leaves, and he's like, Khan, come play games with me. I must take my mind off my terrible decisions. <laughs> and Khan proceeds to rip him a fucking new one for letting Emma go, and ultimately convinces Ash to go after her. Fuck yeah. But by this point, there is a price on the monster of Mayfair's head for kidnapping some girl at the theater, and Ash gets nabbed by thugs the moment he steps outside. Yes. Now... In an increasingly unlikely series of events, <laughs> in a timeline that makes less sense than James Bond being able to hold his breath for as long as he can, yeah. Ash is rescued by Emma's weird friends Yay! and gets out of prison? Where are they holding him? <laughs> I'm not real clear on that. <laughs> I, To be honest, it never occurred to me to care where they were holding him, so I never <laughs> noticed. So what the timeline of this, just so everyone knows, is that uh, so Emma goes to the ball. She's described as specifically in the book. It says that she had left six minutes ago. So six minutes after Emma leaves for the ball, Ash goes down to the badminton court, <laughs> gets berated by his butler, decides to go after Emma, gets dressed for the ball, walks out of the house, is accosted by thugs, is taken to a vaguely defined prison, <laughs> attempts to bribe his way out unsuccessfully, is rescued by uh, Emma's friends, makes it to the ball about, I'm going to go with 10 minutes after Emma arrives. <laughs> yeah, that, because I can totally see how it would take her, like, it, it wasn't that she left six minutes ago, right? It's that she's been at the ball for like not that long. Uh-huh. It's like this celebrity thing where all of the carriages have to wait in a big long line to like get let out. And then you walk in and like you get announced and all that stuff. And it takes a while mm. to get there. So I can see that part of it, but I okay. don't see how he would get there that fast. Yeah, I am totally willing to suspend my disbelief on this one, but it's too much. It's it's like in wrestling when you hit the guy with your finisher for the third time or fourth or fifth time. <laughs> and like, he still kicks out. It's like, come on, man. I you have to that. give us something. So like, I would, am totally willing to believe she was waiting in line for a while, but he did so much. She would have had to be there, been there for like two hours yeah. before he showed up. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He shows up in time, just in time, of course, <laughs> where he stands before society and all his grotesque glory and is pretty much totally accepted by them because, I mean, come on, he's still white. Yeah, right? And he's a duke. He's fucking rich. Yeah, he's he's a rich white guy. Like, did you really think you couldn't go to a ball? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, during the 10 minutes that Emma has been here, she has talked to Davina and her father. And uh, Davina, she, like Emma's trying to convince Davina's dad to let Emma take her to Swanlea. But Davina just like breaks down and tells her dad everything. And it turns out that the whole plan was stupid because Davina's dad actually loves her and Emma was just projecting her own issues with her dad onto her friend. Yeah. Which, sure, I guess. 
I actually thought they had some pretty legitimate concerns on this score. <laughs> oh, yeah, I agree. Like, I, I think those re- really reasonable concerns, but I was n- lovely to see Nice Dad. It was great to see Nice Dad. I, my only problem with it is, like, the book kind of frames it as, oh, of course it's Nice Dad. Yeah, like, it's only, that I was sort of like, meh, no. Ni- I only assumed he was going to be Mean Dad because my dad was Mean Dad. Was like, no, it, when it comes to premarital pregnancy, you can pretty much safely assume Mean Dad, I think. Yeah, especially at this period of history. I'm like, yeah, it's going to be Mean Dad. Yeah. But, you know, but but sure, it's it's fine. Um, Emma and Ash dance and make up. They end up going back to their house where Emma shows him the lingerie she has knit for herself or sewn for herself. <laughs> knitted. Oh just, just sorry. Sexy woolen lingerie. No, she has sewn a lingerie yeah, for herself. Go. Mostly out of lace. Yeah. And the final scene takes place in Swan Leo with their son. And yeah. uh, they have had their baby. They are together. They have gotten over their shit. And uh, they are, I believe they enjoy one last uh, scene of getting it on, if I'm yeah, not mistaken. Yeah, they do. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's the Duchess deal. Oh, my god! That was my mansplanation of it. Thank you so much for that perfect gem of a mansplanation i uh the smile on my face it hurts it hurts so good (laughs) so what if anything surprised you about your reading experience i mean the main thing that surprised me was how much i enjoyed it okay like i really 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 like this book oh like i started (laughs) raving about it to sharon and telling her how much she should read it like i just I didn't know entirely what I was getting into when it comes to the romance novel journey, but I know now that I can trust your taste, Bob. Oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. I think we're we're operating on a similar wavelength in terms of the kind of shit that we like, which is one of the reasons we're doing a podcast together. Yes. Um. So, yeah, I, that was the thing that surprised me the most is like how into it I was. It also was a really quick read, which I thought it was going to be, but it surprised me how well-paced it was. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to know, you know, as you always ask me what I thought of the match overall, I'm curious about what you thought of the book as a whole. I mean, yeah, I, I loved it. I think, again, that was that was really um, my biggest takeaway from it is just like how much I enjoyed it. If you had come to me before this, before reading this book and be like, so just a quick question. Do you think, would you associate romance novels, like, particularly with the idea of themes and having (laughs) themes? Using the word themes? I've been like, no, romance novels don't need themes. The theme is we're going to write sex scenes and talk about romance, like, right? But, like, this romance novel is all about these two characters learning to not define themselves by the perspectives of people who are bad for them mm-hmm. and like learning to get over and cut out toxic relationships and not let what's happened in their pasts terrify them out of enjoying the first like non-toxic relationship that either of them have really had. Yeah. So it's really cool. I mean, it strikes me particularly like it has personal resonance for me as well 
Um, in many ways, their relationship reminded me of my my own marriage, um, especially because my wife, I am, you know, she was married before me and he was a douchebag and she has dealt with like abusive, toxic relationships in her past. And so I, I had that real personal connection. And like I have in the past also had feelings that I am not a worthy companion or like I can't understand why she wants to be with me Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like those are insecurities that i felt too oh yeah and part of our relationship is having to remind each other that we have value to each other Mm -hmm. because sharon and i are both somewhat predisposed to think of ourselves as not worth the other's attention Mm -hmm. or time and we have to kind of continually reinforce that because we both have that kind of shit going on so it hit really close to home, and that's one of the reasons I enjoyed it was because it was such a cool picture of, like, two people finding each other and, like, and getting over that shit. You know yeah. what I mean? Just, like, really, like, recognizing – in his case, it takes him a fucking while. Yeah. But, like, recognizing what's preventing them from, like, just accepting this happiness – and like actively moving past it and finding peace and joy in in their marriage and so in that regard like this book is an improvement on like beauty and the beast oh yeah vastly you know? and i love beauty and the beast but this book is definitely like i would say this is a way healthier version of that story. Agree. Um, and yeah, and uh i didn't mention before that i i forgot to put it into the the mansplanation but but Ash does eventually finally give up being the monster of Mayfair, yes. passes the mantle over to the menace, and goes public to the papers about it. So there's no risk of, of anything happening in Backlash. There's a great moment in the book where Emma's like, okay, so if you're wanted for murder, is that going to be a problem? <laughs> and he's like, no, I'm rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that her reaction to that is like, this fucking world yeah 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 and like and that too there are a lot of kind of cool class themes that kind of sprinkled throughout and kind of um gender role themes sprinkled throughout yes i wanted to give you the definition the romance writers of america definition of what a romance novel is yes please tell me because i'm very curious because it seems as though romance novels also have their own genres like this is a regency romance yes and i'm not gonna define regency romance i'm gonna just define romance but so it it must be about two people as they develop romantic love for each other and work to build a relationship both the conflict and the climax of the novel should be directly related to that core theme of developing a romantic relationship And then it has to have an emotionally satisfying and optimistic ending. It's so funny because I remember when I was reading it, um, there are frequent times where, you know, it throws doubt on whether or not they're going to get together. And you kind of have to trust that they are because that's what this is. I got the sense. I'm like, they're not going to end this book without them being together in the end. Yes. I remember the first time a buddy of mine in college showed me a sports movie where the team doesn't win the big game at the end. Oh, shit. And I was like, fuck you. Why would you show me this? <laughs> and he's like, it's, man, it's it's a good movie. It's subversive. Like, it's ab- about how they don't need to, you know, you don't need to win the big game. I'm like, fuck that shit. I come for a sports movie. 
because they need to win the big game at the end. That's <laughs> that is the promise of watching a sports movie. And if they don't win the big game at the end, what are we even doing here? <laughs> That's how I feel about any romance novel that would ever not have an H-E-A, as they say, the happy ever after. Yeah. I yeah, that would be like, well then this is not a romance novel by yeah. by all reasonable definitions. Like, I'm sorry, Moneyball is not a sports movie. It's just not. It's a good movie. It's a fantastic drama. It's not a sports movie for one reason and one reason only. Spoiler alert, they don't win the big game at the end. <laughs> I didn't they think need to. that sports movies was going to be another big crossover in this, but I can totally see that. Like, there are some very, very rigid expectations of how oh, a sports yeah. movie unfolds. And all sports movies are the same. Oh, yeah. Well. They, so. <laughs> they, they're supposed to be, hopefully. If they're not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then you end up with Miles going, well, you did a bad job and you should feel bad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you don't traditionally, one does not end the main event of WrestleMania with the heel going over. It just, you just don't do it. Sometimes you do, but most of the time you don't do it. <laughs> Miles has to go write an angry blog about Moneyball after this. <laughs> I was able to kind of like rely on that, like because I was emotionally invested in the story. Oh, and like there yes. are moments, like at the end when he like when he like tries to sever, that was kind of on pins and needles. Like I was on the edge of my seat, but I was able to kind of like keep in mind. Nope, I without ever having run a romance novel. I'm confident that this story has to have a happy ending. I was just going to say that's one of the real joys of a romance novel is that you are safe in the author's hands. Right. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we move on to the sights, sounds, and feels? I just really enjoyed it. I really liked this book. Oh, I'm so (laughs) So glad. Thank you for recommending it to me slash forcing me to read it for a podcast. Yeah, Um, I was like, oh boy, oh boy, if Miles doesn't go on this ride, like, this is going to be a very awkward car trip home, essentially. So now we get to the sights, sounds, and feels of romance. So we'll uh-huh. be covering a visual from the book, a piece of dialogue, and a moment that we felt something along with, and we don't do this for the wrestling, although maybe we should, a bonus section on the peak sexiness moment in the novel, because it's all sexy. There's mm. always a little bit of sexiness, but there is a I moment- we should do that I know, for wrestling. we probably should, <laughs> but there is yeah. a moment in any given romance novel whenever you're like, ah, this turned up to 11. Mm-hmm. So, Miles, what did your elf eyes see? I don't know if this- Counts like I, I wanted to do an, uh, you know, like visual imagery from the novel. But when I was looking back over it, my elf eyes couldn't help but glance upon the cover. Oh, yes. Um, and I just found it really interesting because I know that authors very rarely have control over what the covers of their books look like. Mm-hmm. And this cover, at least my version, is a super typical romance cover. Yes. About the two of them in, like, soft lighting, kissing each other. But what's interesting to me is that, like, the dude in this picture is not disfigured at all. 
<laughs> like, and you're only really looking at him in profile. So, like, you can make an argument that you're only seeing his good side, literally. But, like, if you look at the picture, you can kind of see, like, the other part of his bare chest in addition to the one that's on your side of the camera, so to speak. Yeah. And, like, there's no fucking burns or scars on this guy. <laughs> they are, and not they as in the authors. The authors, I think, would love it if the covers were more realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm sure they would. Yeah, but there's such reluctance to put, like, uh, somebody with any kind of, you know, disfigurement. Or there have also been novels with explicitly plus-size heroines, and they're like, well, we'll make her somewhat curvy. And, like, that's oh, the sure. stop to that. Yeah. So, yeah, Bullshit. it's definitely... A real reluctance. And also, like, some of them will wear glasses or something, and they're like, we're not going to put that on there. Glasses are for nerds. And you're like, okay. Yeah, aside from the cover, uh, the thing that my elf eyes noted about the book in terms of its imagery was just how colorful all the imagery was. Mm-hmm. And I think partially it's very much helped by Emma being a seamstress, so he can work a lot of, a lot of colors into the story because she's paying a lot of attention to the clothes. But also, I just think, like, anytime you're in Penelope's house... <laughs> Like, I get such a clear picture of this fucking madness. And, and I, I'm so glad to hear that these characters are the ones featured in later books because I love them. And they are just such colorful characters that when they're in the story is the moment where I feel most like I'm like watching a movie. Yeah, they're such interesting friends. I really enjoy them. So, Bob, what did your elf eyes see? The moment in the story that I think of as iconic is whenever (laughs) Ash is trying to go and have sex with Emma late at night (laughs) and (laughs) Breaches the cat shows up and he's like, we're not alone. And he thinks it's an intruder, but it's actually the fucking cat. And the cat claws him to pieces and it's somewhat (laughs) dark in the room. So he's like running into shit and then some glass breaks and he's like walking on that. And it's like (laughs) the worst sex disaster that you can imagine. That was a really terrible sex capade. Yeah, it's such a great moment because it's not that we've all been there where it's gone so wrong, but just you can appreciate that there was all of this lead up and then it all goes so fucking wrong because that goddamn cat. I love it. Yeah, I've definitely, like like you said, I'm not, it's never gone that wrong. No, nobody's ever needed to go to the hospital afterwards. Well, I mean, okay, not nobody. I should, I, at this point, I'm just going to put out a quick plug. Y'all should listen also to the Odyssey Storytelling Podcast, which is the podcast that I get paid to produce Ooh. for a, a local nonprofit here in Tucson where I live. And um, one of the earlier ones, I think, if you can find it, it's a story by a guy named J- Jeff Whitehead. And uh, he tells a story on the podcast about um, the time when a dog bit him in the balls during sex. <gasps> oh, Jesus. And there was definitely hospitalization involved. Oh, my God. That hasn't been said. I've never experienced anything like that, but uh, I've definitely experienced, like, something like that where, like, you know, you're really in the mood and then, like, some shit happens and then you're both just like, maybe not tonight. Yeah, you're like, this could be cursed. <laughs> All right, Miles, what did your Vulcan ears hear? There are some real good lines in this book, I gotta say, on the part part of a lot of characters. But I think my favorite line is <laughs> toward the end, when Con the butler reads Ash the Riot Act and, like, starts throwing all the balls at him and, like, 
calls him an asshole for letting Emma go. Yes. After he's done and he storms out of the room, Ash's response is, Damn, Khan! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so good! And, like, it's made even better by the fact that at the end of my version of the book, there's an author's note from Tessa Dare apologizing for talking about badminton. Like, despite the fact that she knows that badminton hadn't really been invented yet, it's like the old version of badminton, and she's calling it badminton for the sake of, like, I'm like, fuck it, fuck your badminton! What about damn con? <laughs> Megan, Bob, what did your Vulcaneers hear? This is whenever they're sort of in the early, the middle part of the book, and uh, Emma is saying, like, okay, yeah, there was this other guy, and he's like, What? Not because right. he's going, oh, okay, I can't I can't believe I'm not the first, but he's like, a, a dude was shitty to you? I hate this. And um, yeah. she's like, what's your, why should it matter? She says, and he goes, because he said, I like to know the names of the people I despise. I keep them in a little book and pour over it from time to time while sipping brandy and indulging in throaty, ominous laughter. <laughs> That's a good one. It is, because he that's totally his conception of himself. And he would unironically say that. Like, he knows he's being facetious, but he's also like, but I will hunt him down as well. Right. Because I'm a cool dude who would do that, because also you're the best, and I hate anybody who has ever dared be shitty to you. So, you know, an important one. What did your human heart feel? So I have two. Okay, well, you know, there was a lot to feel. Uh, Emma canceling her dad was was pretty fucking choice. It was so good. Um, it's one of those things. It's so funny because over the past couple of years, I've found myself increasingly intolerant of why can't we all just get along stories? Oh, yeah. And I do like intellectually, I feel that way. Intellectually, I feel like, you know, mm-hmm. we need to build coalitions. We need to not be turning on each other. We need to present a united front against fucking the bastards in charge and like but at the same time i also i'm completely on board with there is no peace without justice mm-hmm. and stop trying to make there be peace without justice i was starting to feel that way during the scene where emma's dad showed up because i really felt like why is the scene here if she's not forgiving him right like isn't that what's going to happen mm-hmm. and the fact that she didn't And the fact that she was like, no, actually, you don't get to just show up because somebody made you afraid of, you know, religious punishment. You don't get to just show up and apologize for all the things you said and did. You were awful. And the value of reconciliation doesn't diminish the importance of repentance and regret and um, and justice, like I said. And so it's like. I love that she was like, you can't just come here and ask me to forgive you. Yeah. Like, there's going to be a fucking waiting period. And if you really want this, you will take some other actions, too. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying I'm not open to it. But for now, you can get the fuck out with your, like, please forgive me. Otherwise, I'll go to hell. Yeah. And I know this is a lot for me to be talking about. And I'm sorry. Like, this whole episode is really charged with kind of my values. And but this is how I felt about this. And I was just I was surprised and delighted that. She told her dad to hit the fucking bricks. Yeah, it was such a relief to see that because I think so often 
there's a real expectation that the character with less power or like societally less power or something will give way. Mm-hmm. And to see that, you know, the line being drawn and saying like, no, you don't get to do this was so nice. The other one I had in mind was the the last sex scene. Not the last sex scene, but like the the climactic sex scene. <laughs> the the one after they come home from the inn. Yeah. Where they make love and she's on top and he feels complete and at home. Yeah. That was the one that made that like caused the most emotion in me. Oh, so I good. really love that scene. And the and the to follow it up immediately with that fucking thing about the throwing up is like, oh, that's evil, but it's good. It's so but good. it's evil. <laughs> yeah. Megan Bob, what did your human heart feel? Whenever Khan tells Ash that he's being an idiot, the moment that you mentioned, whenever at the the end of it, he says, damn, Khan. (laughs) I love that moment so much because Khan is very clearly put upon and has known Ash for forever since he was very little and has been around. And he's the Alfred Pennyworth character. Yeah, he really is. And to see him throw that cricket ball and then make sure (laughs) that it bounces up to hit Ash in the gut Mm-hmm. So he'll just be there going, I, what have I done? And Khan's point is, you're being a fucking baby. If you don't get her back, like you never deserved her and we'll all quit and fuck you. The joy of seeing him draw that line in the sand and, you know, telling basically Batman, get the fuck over yourself. Right. Fucking <sighs> get a job. Like, yeah. you, like. And it's it's great, too, because it's after the moment where you've come around to full sympathy on Ash. Yeah. But at the same time, you're like, because when Ash has that last meltdown, my reaction was the same as Emma's reaction was like, which was like, dude, are we past this? Yeah. Like, didn't we already get past issues? And it's like, I understand that Ash had legitimate things to work through. And I don't want to. Nobody's trying to marginalize his experience or his suffering. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he did go through some shit. He went to a war. He got half his body blown up by a fucking rocket going off in his face. Like, like it's not nothing at all. Yeah. Um. And, and by this point, you've definitely come around to that view as opposed to like kind of being sick of Emma constantly having sympathy for him, mm-hmm. Um. which I had a couple of moments of in the beginning of oh, the yeah. book. But at this point, after he's had that freak out, it's like, okay, buddy, it's it's really time. Like, I, I sympathize. It's really time to grow up now. It's really time to stop with this. And I, I couldn't appreciate more Khan being the one to tell him that. Oh, so good. Oh, I love that Khan also gets to, like, be salty with him at the very end of the book. Yeah, me too. It's pretty good. Yeah. Especially because Khan, you know, especially given, like, Khan's an Indian dude. Yeah. Like, you know, definitely, like, the most put upon of servants. So. Yes, absolutely. All right. I believe he's the only person of color in the book. I believe so. So at least the only major character who's a person of color. It's nice that he gets that moment. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I obviously wish there were more people of color in this book. But yes. It's nice. The one guy gets to be like, no, fuck you, buddy. Yeah. Fuck you. You fucking self-loathing piece of shit. Like, I'm done. Yeah. I don't care that you can fire me. Go fuck yourself. Oh, so good. Con's great. I would read a book about Khan for sure. I'd read a book about Khan too. All right. This is <laughs> for some context. Whenever we originally talked about this, dear listeners, I was sort of saying to Miles, well, what do you like? What are you interested in? And Miles was like, uh, whatever. It's going to be fine. Like, you know, I'm not going to have sexy feelings about it. So it doesn't really matter. 
And I was like, mm, well, we'll see. <laughs> like, <laughs> we won't know till we know, will we, Miles? And Miles was like, nah, I'm pretty sure we know. I was like, eh, okay, okay. <laughs> Miles, was it sexy? It was super sexy. Ah, <laughs> vindication. And if you want a clarification of that, you can ask my wife, who a couple of nights while I was reading this book was like, what has gotten into you? There you go. Men listening to this. It works. It does the thing. You're like, nah, it can't do the thing, but it does the thing. It does the thing. Like, and again, I think a lot of it is because I related to it so much. Like, there's so many scenes where Ash is looking at her going like, "Mm, God damn. Like, (laughs) and she just like moves her neck and you're like, oh, God, what? Why does that stir something in me? Jesus, am I in love with this woman? And like, I can fucking relate to that. And and I also was really, really super happy with the fact that there was such an emphasis on him pleasuring her. Yes. Like, agree. I, that is definitely an expectation of modern romance. Good, because I did not necessarily expect that to be a focus, and which is one of the reasons I didn't know if I was going to find it sexy. Yeah. Because, like, that is a really important thing for me. Yeah. And As it should be for fucking every man out there. I mean, every person in any relationship, you should be fairly fucking invested in the other person enjoying sex. Like, that should just be a a part of the entrance requirements. Guys, if you're listening to this, if you're listening to this and you, you know, have never had sex or, you know, have only had like bad sex where you're not sure how to like, you know, can't can't keep, you know, these relationships or whatever, because like you can't you having a hard time, you know, maintaining your end of things on that end. Guys, like, take it from somebody who will very soon have physical proof of virility. <laughs> like, I, I can prove that I had sex with a woman <laughs> in about in a couple of weeks here. <laughs> so, at, j- fucking make her a priority. Yeah. Before, you know what? We're fucking easy. Yeah. Look, you could. It, it does not take much to get us to the place where we need to be, okay? You can fucking wait. You can wait your turn. You make her a fucking priority. And you listen and pay attention to what she likes. Fucking, and, and even if it's not, like, a girl, like, but fucking make your partner a priority, yeah. people. Like, it's not a gender thing, even. Just, it's fucking, part of being a good lover is is showing the other person that you prioritize them over yourself. You will have much more success that way. Oh, I'm just boy. Gonna be straight up honest with you guys. Yeah. Um, the crucial, it will, it will win you so, so much joy and frankly, much better, more interesting sex. Yeah, for sure. Sex is always more fun when both people are having a good time. So and like I really liked this because I just really enjoyed how attracted they were to each other. Yeah, you know. And it's like if you've ever just felt that way, where it's like just everything they do is sexy. I think Tessa Dare did a really nice job of of like conveying that. Oh yeah, because it's it's great. You can just like feel how charged the rooms are uh, when they're in them. I love it, and uh, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, this was I I stand absolutely corrected on the. Not being turned on by a romance novel thing, because, uh, yeah, 
this shit got me going. Yeah. I don't mind saying so. <laughs> You're not too proud to admit it. I am not too proud to admit it. <laughs> I can't, even if there are people listening now who are like, I didn't need to know that. I'm like, fuck you. Yes, you did. I don't give a, f- I don't give a fuck what you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> this is not here for that. This is Bob's podcast, guys. And, and well, she probably didn't need to know either, but. <laughs> hey, I feel, I feel so vindicated though. That I'm like, you know what? No, I did need to know. I needed to fucking know this because I needed to know that the thing that I was like, if this doesn't get somebody going, like, ah, what are you dead? Like, just emotionally. Right. So yeah. yeah, I'm I'm pleased. And now with that very important, possibly the most important question to me, question addressed. Now <laughs> it is which scene was peak sexiness? Because I kind of had two candidates, but I'm gonna let Miles. I want to know which one you went with, because I think there's different definitions of sexiness that we could go with. So my candidates, definitely the the making love sex. Yes. Like, that's just, that's a really great scene. Um, the first time they actually managed to have sex is a pretty great scene. Yeah, boy, that was a struggle to get there. It feels worth it. Yeah, it, it was really kind of teased a lot, but, um, oh God, we didn't even mention the fucking scene where they... He's trying to draw the cat out so that they can lock it in the fucking bin, so the, in the box, yes. so they can have sex uninterrupted. Um, oh, the cat does get out, everybody. Don't worry. Yeah, but honestly, like, everything between those two scenes is also pretty fucking good. Yeah. Because, like, the the as soon as he understands that she actually does want to have sex with him, it's it's pretty it's pretty tremendous stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think I think that first one is might might be my number one. What do you think? For me, it was kind of a toss up between the blowjob because mm. that one was such a ash being passive. Uh-huh. And I really appreciated that Emma got to be sort of the more aggressive person in it. And mm-hmm. that Ash just kind of had to roll with it. And also was, I guess, confronted with like, oh man, she actually likes me. Like she likes me, likes me. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I think I would give it to the making love sex scene because it combined the punch of a real big emotional climax with sex that felt like it met that bar. Because I think it's not every time does sex with a big emotional component in writing work in. Also, it's very sexy. I think mm-hmm. sometimes you end up with one or the other. And and that's not, you know, the worst thing. I think it's hard to do that well. So I'm going to get to that point. Let me see where it is. I'm not going to read all of it because it goes on a ways. They always do. But um, so they're having sex and he's saying mm-hmm. and he says, don't love me. And what they're doing at this point is he has said, you know, you're pretty recalcitrant. Like you tend to go against me. Or she said that about herself. I can't remember which. Yeah. And so... He is using that as a way to kind of ask for the things that he wants because he doesn't feel worthy of asking any other way. And so they're basically playing the opposite game where he says, don't do this. And then she does it. She does it. Yeah. He he says, don't do this when he wants her to do something. Yeah. Um, Which finally allows him to ask for what he wants. Mm -hmm. So he says, don't love me. And the words came unbidden from his throat, not a thought, but a plea. Too late, she whispered in his ear. Don't tell me so. Don't say the words. I love you. She cupped his face in her hands and brushed a kiss to his lips. I love you so much. 
There was nothing left for him to resist. He held her to him. And as they tumbled over the edge together, no joy could have been more complete. He was complete. Yeah, you're right. That's number one. That's just. I mean, it's just so good. Like it ticks every box and does so well. Yeah. I was just looking over the blowjob scene again. You're right, though. That's good shit. It is really good. That is a good sex scene. It is. That's really well done. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Yay. I like this book a lot. All right. So, Miles, now yep. that we've taken this trip together, I have to know, because you texted me and said mm. that reading this made you want to write a romance novel. Mm, I did. I got to know. What's your concept if you have one? I, I don't have one. Um like, definitely, I was reading this going, like, oh, I could do this, mm-hmm. you know? And, like, I flatter myself to think that I might have something to say on the subject, as I have already made it clear on this podcast. <laughs> so, maybe I feel like I should. Uh, I don't have a concept for it yet. So, but, uh, but yeah, I've already, on the Twilight show, I've already talked about um, writing Twilight fanfic uh, uh, under the name Miles Fixes Twilight. Yay. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe this is a thing. You never know. I'm not going to rule it out. All right. So then in a world in which you had all the time to do so, would you choose to read another romance novel? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was I, expecting I, like some, eh, maybe. I, no, 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 I definitely would. I'm going to, I'm going to guess that, uh, I, I'm actually really interested in the fact that there's a sequel. Yes. I am very much hoping it involves, uh, I forgot, I can't remember the character's name, but the the clockmaker g- girl who meets uh, the dude in the bookstore. That is the meet cute for them. Yeah, and let's do it. Yes, yeah, so I I have it on Kindle. If you want to get into my Kindle store, I can totally share it with you. <laughs> um, yes, that is the next one, and then the one after that is Penelope's book. Okay, and then the last one is ooh, I can't remember her name. I want to say it's Nancy, but I don't think it is Nancy. It's not Nancy. It's um Nicola. Fuck, the mat- Nicola. Nicola, the mad scientist. Yeah, yeah, no, it's Nicola for sure. And so yeah. they are the next ones. And I just today got Penelope's book, and I am very excited to read it. If if I had a complaint about this book, it was going to be that there's not enough of them in it. Mm. So. I would have really liked to see more of them. So I'm I'm really intrigued by the prospect of books that involve them a little bit more because I really like them as characters. Oh, so, yeah. It's so strange. I was, I was going like, uh, you know, like when she first met them, I'm like, oh, cool. She's going to be brought into the misfits. Like, that's pretty obvious. But like the extent to which they were misfits, I was not prepared for. I'm like, what the fuck do you mean? You're a mad scientist <laughs> and a baker. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're ready to read another one on your own, like, uh, I am so I'm so interested to get your your response to it. I mean, you know, I have so many books to read. Yes, you but do. If if it ends up happening, I'm I'm very interested in reading the sequel. And if it ends up happening, I will absolutely report back. Yay. Because, yeah, I, I just I'm, I'm into it, man. Uh, this is. Like, I've dipped my toe into these waters and found them pleasantly warm. Yay! So, perhaps the foot next. Oh, man. Yeah, there was a real risk of this that I was like, oh, boy, if Miles doesn't like this, like, what am I going to do every time I get 10 points? Which, you know, then very much flatters me that I'm going to be getting 10 points all the time. Oh, just all the time, constantly. Just const- just drowning in points. Points everywhere. <laughs> that yeah i was like oh shit if miles isn't into this like this is gonna be a real road to hoe going forward so 
<sighs> no, man. I fucking loved it. Yeah. I really loved it. Oh, my God. This is everything I wanted. <laughs> Thank you so much for suggesting this one. Oh. It was a really great choice. Oh, I'm so glad. All right, you have to let me know if Sharon likes it when she if she if she has time to read it. God knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will absolutely let you know. I think that's all we got for this episode, Bob. This has been Miles and Bob talking about a romance novel for a couple of hours, and yeah. I I had a great time. Thank you all so much for listening to the show. Um, good job getting the points, Bob. I wish you all the best in, Thank you. in continuing your journey. Uh, as you, we continue in the next wrestling fan, you're going to start over from scratch and we're going to see if we can get another one of these into existence. Yeah. So um, we will we will see what happens until the next uh, until Bob gets 10 points again and we come back for another romance novel. It's going to be time for us to dive back into the wrestling world where I feel much more you know at home. But uh, but I think Bob is also carving out a space for herself there. Yeah. So. And we're gonna have to start talking about sexy moments sometimes. We, you know, we should just do that. We should just like <laughs> fucking do it. Anyway, um, I mean, there is the fact that you know William Regal is there with that long, grabbable hair. That's so. the only question: is like, will he just get it every time he's on the episode? Yeah, I mean, odds are very high. <laughs> we already spend so much time talking about William Regal. <laughs> well, he should stop being so fucking sexy. You really should. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.